0: Yo, welcome to episode sixty-four of the Gigloff Podcast. I'm your host Stevie Taylor. I hope you're well. This episode is with the brilliant Steve Hunter. Now, before we roll into that, please take a minute and listen to this brief service announcement from the Gigloff Podcast. As I've always said, the Gigloff Podcast is free to you. It always has been, and it always will be free for you to access the interviews and the related content at any time. But like anything else these days, the Gig Life podcast costs money to produce. Websites, podcast hosting subscriptions, travel costs to visit the guests for interviews, Wi-Fi and data costs, production equipment upgrades, as well as the time, of course. Now, if you see the value in the Gig Life podcast, if you would like to help, and of course, if you're able to, you can now donate. I have set up a secure link where you can donate to the gig podcast you can give as little or as much as you like it's not a recurring payment thing it's not a patreon type setup where you pay to continue to, to receive the content it's completely voluntary if you choose to give nothing that's perfectly fine you will still be able to listen to the podcast as you have to this point and you will continue to receive the new episodes as they become available just like everybody else nothing will change but whatever you do give will be very much appreciated and also know that you'll be helping me to bring you and everybody else all these great interviews. The secure donate link is in the show notes of this episode or on the website, thegiglifepodcast.com. As always, you can contact me anytime via the website. There's a contact uh, section on the website there or you can hit me up on Facebook or Instagram and the handle there is at thegiglifepodcast um, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Pod. Um, Or you can email me, thegiggleoffpodcast at gmail.com. Today is Steve Hunter, a renowned virtuoso of the electric bass, a prolific songwriter and composer, and Steve has also been a bass teacher for over 20 years. Born and raised in Kent in England, Steve was picking out melodies on the family piano from an early age, but it wasn't until shortly after his family immigrated to Australia when at about age 15 he picked up an electric bass and immediately knew that creating music and playing bass was to basically become his life. With 10 albums to date as band leader, Steve's also gone on to play with Billy Cobham, Chick Career, Bass City Rollers, Dig, Tree with David Jones, the Errol Buttle Quartet, Dale Barlow Band, and many, many others. Steve also was the very first bass teacher at the Australian Institute of Music back in 1990. These days, Steve still teaches, um, and he has his band, the Steve Hunter Trio, with Gordon Rittmeister and Matt McMahon and he also plays with the Subterraneans. Um, it was great to hang with Steve at his home studio and talk about his life, his music, his thoughts. I hope you dig it as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the great Steve Hunter. Cheers. Cheers. All right, I think we're rolling. Okay. Steve Hunter, welcome to the Gig Life podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. How are you, man? Good. Good, yeah, Yeah. thanks for having me at your house. Yeah. Um, If you see me look down at this every now and then, I'm just um, double-checking that it's still recording and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, All right, so what's a a day, a week in the life of Steve Hunter in October
1: 2019? October 2019, well, it'd be... uh, Four gigs, I think. Four gigs, I think. This month they're all right. Steve Hunter band gigs. Yep. That's a, that's a trio. Mm-hmm. There would usually be. This month it's, at, it's it's been a different drummer. I'd usually have Gordon Rittmeister, but he's got a busy month, so I'm using a different drummer for this month. But that's myself and Matt McMahon on the piano. Yep. And um, so you, Gordon, and Matt are the drummer. me, Gordon, and Matt is, are is the, the trio. trio? And I occasionally, add somebody else. Yep. But that's the core band I've had for the last, well, this year anyway. Mm. For the f- four years before that, I had a horn in the band as well. Mm. But I decided I just wanted to cut back to a trio for a bit and just yep. do a bit of that.
0: Yep. Was that out of necessity? No, not really. a change of music?
1: Yeah, it was. A, I had a quartet with the horn in it and uh, quite, there were quite a few gigs that the horn player couldn't make. So we go, okay, well, that's cool. We'll just do it as a trio. And then I started really just enjoying it is a trio. Right. So I thought, I' oh, well, maybe I'll just run with that for a bit. Mm. So I think of all the bands I've had over the years, I don't think I've ever just had a trio, actually. So I was just right. really enjoying enjoying doing sort of trio gigs with Matt and Gordon. Yep. And uh, that sort of basic line-up of the band's been going for... I've been at Lazy Bones with that band for the last five years. We've been, I've been resident there for five years. And uh, for the last... Three years it's been with that lineup, and mm. then two years prior to that, it was the same except Andy Gander was yep. on drums, and then he moved up to uh, Brunei, and then then Gordon stepped in. Mm. So that's sort of that's mostly what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the sort of yeah, that's what I hinge m- my musical activities on basically what I wanted my thing. Yep. But then I played with a band called the Subterraneans and mm. um, other various sort of. Bits and pieces and bits and bobs, you know.
0: Right, so who's the Subterranean? I've heard the name, I'm just not,
1: not it's sure. It's led it? by a saxophone player called James Ryan. Oh, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And um, has a guitar player called Michael Coggins. And uh, a drummer from South America called Giorgio Rojas. Uh-huh. And plays nice a uh, percussionist too, yeah, 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 he is. And then it's got a percussionist as well. Ike. Oh, right, okay. Ico plays percussion as well mm-hmm. in it. That's, and that's nice. Right. Pat Powell sometimes sings with us. Right. We're doing a gig uh, the well, week after next with Ray Thistlethwaite. Oh, yeah. Thirsty Merc guy with us. He comes and does a thing with us sometimes.
0: Yeah. Are you on Instagram at all?
1: No. Ray
0: Thistlethwaite has one of the funniest Instagram accounts.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to, to browse any of this stuff, it's just all off the cuff and
1: yeah, yeah. hilarious. I see some of his on um, Facebook similar sort just of stuff. Fast minded.
0: Fast minded. If something just pops in his head, he just yeah. picks up the phone and, <laughs> yeah. you know, it'll yeah. be next morning straight after a gig, and it just he'll just ramble. It's it's, it's the best. Yeah, yeah.
1: He, he loves that. He loves playing that game with himself. Just I think <laughs> to think fast and see what happens. In see price. what happens. Yeah.
0: yeah. But he's uh he's getting a little bit more popular out of it too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome musician. Eh? Brilliant guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you teaching? I am. I, yep. te- I teach quite a bit. I teach here. Yep. And um, I teach for the conservatorium music. Yep. Uh, for the jazz department there. I teach the sort of bass. Yep. Uh, one-on-ones. Um, I teach for UNSW, University of New South Wales. And, uh, and actually on Wednesdays I, I teach out at a, uh, a Catholic boys' high school for half a day as well. Right. So I do, you know, a reasonable amount of that. Right. Yeah. So the the music you're um, teaching at the con yeah
0: um, is that uh, like a a set syllabus or Uh, it's sort of both by by yourself or by by the con that you're having to teach these
1: yes I don't know I I, I have nothing to do with setting the syllabus at all okay Um, they they do have a a set um, list of I think jazz standards or something that they have to check out right. And then I just do what's called instrumental studies, where it's just bass guitarists, because they have a double bass person as well, Craig Scott, which I don't teach. Um, and they they uh, do whatever they want with me, really. Though they, they don't necessarily go through those tunes with me. They can if they want to. Some of them do, and some of them just have other whole loads of questions, or they just they're just interested to see what I might be able to. Right, show them that they hadn't thought of themselves. Right, that's cool. And just sort of grab from me what they can, and grab from another person whatever they can, you know.
0: That's cool. Is it's it like that at the uni as
1: well, or? Well, it's part of Sydney Uni. Oh right. Yeah, the conservatorium is part of Sydney Uni. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's um, yeah, it's a good gig actually. I like teaching there, and, and uh, they're they're mostly the kind of most enthusiastic students, you know, the yeah. sort of young players, sort of. 20 years of age, around sort of, you know, 18 to 25 sort of years of age and they're into it and they've got time to practice. And right. I like I like that sort that's of... That's rewarding
0: teaching. Yeah, thing. man, it yeah. really is, yeah. Mm. That's cool, man. Yeah. All right, well, let's roll back to early days. You were born in Kent, England. I was
1: born in Kent, in England. In the 19- year of the
0: Fender,
1: is that right? The year of the Fender, jazz. The yeah, The year, yeah. year of the Fender, Fender jazz, jazz was invented, that's right. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. In Kent, south-east England in yeah, 1960, yeah. Mm. And emigrated here. Yep.
0: At, uh, well, let's stay back in England for a bit. So, right. what was what was it like growing up?
1: It was, um, was it music.
0: It was musical around. Sorry, mother and yeah. father musical.
1: My mother's side of the family's musical. All yep. the uncles sort of played a bit of guitar. None of them were professionals, mm. but they played a bit of guitar. My mum played piano. Um, there, were act, there was an actor in there, and just sort of creative side of the family. You know, my grandfather played some cello. Um, but yeah, they're all, all the sort of self-taught. Um, so we had a piano in the house growing up, which which I diddled around on, but didn't have any you know formal lessons or anything. Mm. But I was pretty good at picking up melodies and things like that. Right. A lot of music in the house. My my dad was didn't play music, but they they uh, they played music a lot around you know records R- in the, in what, the house. What, what kind of stuff? Vast variety. R- pretty write varied. Stuff? Yeah, pretty varied. Like. Yep which I think is probably the case with most families around that time, especially we, the kind of where I was. They they had like maybe 30 LPs or something, but they would be really varied. There would be like um, some musicals like, I don't know, like West Side Story or something, and then there would be some uh, Beatles, some Bill Haley and the Comets. Um, there would be like uh, Burt Bacharach, um and even a little bit of classical stuff like, uh, well, strangely, they had Rite of, Travinsky's Rite of Spring, Peter and the Wolf. Um, yeah, so it was pretty. Some of that British, that sort of Pommy jazz thing, like Kenny Ball and his Jazzmen. Mm-hmm. A little bit of that. Yeah, so, yeah, that mm. pretty much. And of course, the Beatles, eh? Hey? Yeah, that, that was omnipresent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, from the time I was about five, I remember them being. You know, just present. It's sort of part of the fabric of life. It's hard to, hard to imagine, but, yeah, it was, it was. they were just so much a part of the fabric. Well, probably of everywhere, but in England particularly, you know. And mm. you, I remember me and my brothers wanting to have our hair, hair cut like the Beatles and right. we wanted to have beetle boots, you know, with a pointy kind of toe. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was really... And the kinks too, actually. Yeah, right. Because they were just, they'd south, you know, where I'm from. Um, and the kinks, yeah, they, they were... I think my mum really liked the kinks more than the Beatles and my dad liked the Beatles more, yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you
0: have that moment where you got to see the Beatles perform live on Ed Sullivan's show? No, did You didn't, I didn't see that, okay. I didn't. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. I'm just curious that no, if I, it had the impact. It, it didn't have them. the impact, no. Yeah, I, okay, I, well. I
1: never remember that particular... Imp- the, the big impact I remember, actually, from watching TV, the one that just... Sort of made my hair stand on him. it Was in nineteen seventy, so I'd have been ten, and it was it was David Bowie doing ground control to Major Tom, yeah, right, and that went on, and something just, you know, just blew me away. Yep, you know, it's uh, after that countdown bit in it, you know, yeah, uh, this is ground control. I was like, whoa, yeah, that really blew me away, and I was yeah, straight after
0: the, after that's the right. count, yeah, it wasn't, awesome.
1: yeah, that really knocked me out, right. That's the sort of that that kind of moment you're talking about. If it, if there was ever that moment, it would have been that Bobby song. Yeah. yeah, right.
0: Yeah.
1: But you know, actually talking about this stuff is interesting because even though I was only we were 25 minute drive away from all that London, I, where I grew up was 25 minute drive from London. Thinking about it later, like I don't know. Even though it was that that close. It was hard to imagine myself becoming a musician because those people seemed like they were from Mars. Oh, right. Even though they were from just up the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of a... That was what was an interesting thing about arriving in Australia. I was 15 when I got here. Is because you, you'd see these people on telly, like, say, Sherbet or someone. Right. And then you'd see them, they were at the pub around the right, corner. So right, yeah, 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 it was very really close. And you go, oh, that's those dudes that were on Countdown. And they're just there and, and they just seem like regular dags, just, like, just right. like I was. And it seemed like, it's, I don't know, it made it more real somehow that, that you could be a musician yourself and you didn't have to be like from Mars, you
0: know. So did that like scare you off?
1: Well, it, it didn't, it wasn't that it scared me off because at 10 I wasn't really thinking about being a musician okay. anyway. But, but uh, I think it, it wouldn't, yeah, maybe it would have, I, mean, I don't know if it scared me off would have been the way to, I'd put it, but just mm-hmm. not real not real, because I'm from a working class environment, and uh, you know most of the people that were, were around where I was were were um, manual workers, you know. Yep. And uh, they didn't they didn't dress like David Bowie or Mark Boland, <laughs> or, okay. or you know. Yeah. It's kind of so it wouldn't it wouldn't have seemed reasonable for somebody from that sort of environment to to suddenly go oh, I'm gonna be a musician you know right that's just something you do at home
0: right that's fascinating
1: yeah so australia really maybe made that uh sort of somehow more reachable right and available to sort of go maybe i can join a band maybe i can form a band maybe i can write music you know Mm. that kind of thing which is really a good thing
0: all right so was it always bass
1: yeah Right. So it was a base from the start. Do so you yeah. want to
0: talk about that moment you yeah, first the, saw a base? Was yeah. It, did you see it or did you hear a It was a, base? a definite
1: moment, man. I, yep. Uh, it was very shortly after getting here. Uh, and I got here um, a month before I turned 15. And uh, the first kid I met here uh, became friends with, the first Australian kid. We, um, we wagged off school together and hung out at his house because his parents were out during the day. And he had a bass guitar, and it was him and another kid and me. We we school, and I picked up this his bass guitar and started mucking around on it. And both of the Australian kids said, "Oh, did you used to play bass in England?" I said, "No, I never. I never pick. I said I never picked one up in my life. and never had." And they didn't believe me. Right. And I noticed it, you know. And I thought, "Oh, they think I. They think that I've done this before. You know, <laughs> maybe I've got a little bit of a thing." And I. And thankfully the moment wasn't lost on me, you know. I kind of, yeah, I, and I got a bass really quite shortly after.
0: Right.
1: And so that was, that was a defining moment. That was probably the defining moment in, mm. in sort of so, so thoroughly choosing to go with that instrument, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. So when you were first, first picked up that bass and playing, were you, what, what, what do you think made them think that you'd played before? Were you playing? Because
1: I, they... phys- I was physically really comfortable on it.
0: Right, okay. So you probably looked
1: like you were... Yeah, I think it was a look. i got big hands. Yeah, and, right. And, uh, and I kind of could make it sound like something. Right,
0: okay,
1: cool. Even though there was no particular tune or anything, it sort of sounded like semi-convincing to somebody that didn't know anything. <laughs> Fake it
0: for a bit? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. How would you go about getting your first bass?
1: I just uh, I saved up a little bit of money and uh, I got a... Uh, $80 bass from a, a local hawk shop. Right, do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was a an Emperor Door Precision based copy. Right. It wasn't too bad. Right. I, I didn't hang on to it, but it right. Wasn't, right. wasn't actually too bad. Right. And then right. uh, okay. I hang on to that for a little while then got Fenders and other things.
0: Yeah. Yep. Mm. Um, now, what were you listening to
1: music wise at that time? Well, I've just... Jump back into England yeah. a little bit here because yeah. the the couple of years before I left England, I was already going out around town. I was out of the house very young. Um, I'm the oldest of five kids, so they kind of let me run pretty wild. Okay. Even all this shit, these tattoos and stuff I had all over me when I was 13. Okay. And um, I was running around, you know, and uh, I was really into reggae music and ska music and. Black music, essentially, soul music, and just to go and dance to that and, and try and meet girls and whatnot. So I was very into that, and I had a fairly decent record collection of that music. And then when I got here, none of the kids I met in the suburbs of Sydney were into that music or liked that music or knew about that music. It was all kind of um, Black Sabbath, right. Deep Purple... Pink Floyd. It was English bands, <laughs> right? So, so I started getting a little bit into these English bands that I didn't wasn't into when I was in England. Um, just, I suppose, just sort of um, trying to sort of understand where I was, really, in Australia, what this culture was about, you know. Mm. And um, Supertramp. There was a, their first couple of records, like "Crime of the Century." I really liked that. And then Jeff Beck was the big Mm. changing point. I went to see Jeff Beck here in 1976 with the Jan Hammer Group. And uh, that blew me away and I I knew that was with a guy called Fernando Saunders on bass and that was the point where I knew uh, sort of a direction of music that I wanted to chase and get into. And then through that Jeff Beck stuff, it just opened up the floodgates into the whole jazz rock thing, you know. Because
0: I was going to ask you... If you had a cornerstone album, meaning was there an album that sort of set you on a direction? But that kind of sounds like a
1: yeah, prob- probably Je- probably Jeff Beck's um, Blow by Blow would be the first one, and then right, and then Black Market by Weather Report, I guess, would be the second okay. one. Yep. Yeah, they would they would be them, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, and just, and I still dial up tracks from those. Albums too, you know? Yes. In, you're on YouTube and just feel like, oh, I just want to listen to, you know, the chink called Diamond Dust of Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Um,
0: so, did you <coughs> go about self teaching yourself or was it straight away trying to find a teacher that. I just taught to myself. You,
1: you taught yourself? Yeah. yeah.
0: Has that always been the case?
1: It's always been the case. Oh, self taught, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I was a swimmer for a, a few years, um, a competitive swimmer, like every day before school and every day after school. Oh, right. Competitive um, racing on the weekends and stuff. And I just basically applied that to myself. Yeah, right. Which is, um, you, know, it's, you know, they did the, your pulse rate and you have target times and you have targets and you just drill, basically drilling. Right. You just... If your race is 100 metres, you do 100 metres. <laughs> you just keep doing 100 metres and you time it, you know. So I... I, that was all I knew, really. So I applied... A, I, at first, I just applied a sort of sporting concept to it, really. To your practice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and sitting in a chair with a base for five hours is a piece of piss compared to <laughs> swimming up and down a pool for three hours, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so it seemed... So sitting in a chair with a base... And still to me now, like, I'll, I'll sit here right where we are now and... and and the next thing I know, it's four o'clock in the morning, you know. It's a bit boring. Yeah. So I never... It was always very easy for me to sit and be with the bass for hours on end and just mm. run things and practice stuff, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm self-taught, yeah.
0: Right. So how did you pick up the theory of things then?
1: Just a few books. I, uh, and also a lot of friends that were... Um, that started going to the conservatorium and things like that. Yep. And... Um, so I'd figured I'd figured things out, and then they'd say, "Oh, that's called a diminished scale, or whatever." You know, yeah. the, that's called that. Or, and I'd, then I'd sort of go, "Oh, yeah, right, I see." Right. And it's, so just sort of put the names to them, names to things, and, and then I've bought I've bought a few. I don't have many books. I mean, you see, there that yep. in in forty five years plus of playing bass, that's my entire right load of books. I don't I don't have that many, You know. Yeah. So, but I write out exercises. Just, just reams of stuff here that I just write out for myself and practice, you know. Right.
0: And do, do you
1: read now? Can Can you yeah, sight yeah. read now? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Not not as well as I... I probably could sight read better in the in the uh, late 70s, early 80s when I, when I used to do some cabaret shows and things, you know, backing acts and those things yeah. where yeah, you're sort of doing it a lot. It's something you got to stay on, eh? Hey, yeah, I think it? so, man. I, and then after, after about 25, I stopped doing those gigs and... Um, and then and I was in bands where people just let me make up whatever I wanted to most of the time. So I was free to just create, you know, so the reading was mostly just rhythm slashes and, right. and not pages full of dots. Right.
0: Do you mm. remember your first band playing with other people?
1: Yeah, the first gig uh, was when I was 17. I, I moved into the city when I was 16 from my, from my family and... Left home pretty early, 16, and moved into the city, into Paddington. Mm -hmm. Lived in a little boarding house type place. And I met a dude who played um, sort of classical, well, he had been a classical guitarist, but he played a sort of a Brazilian classical guitar sort of style thing. And um, he wrote his own tunes. And uh, the first gigs I did were with him, just a duet. And um, I just put... Basically, he, he would play the chord and I'd say, what notes are in the chord? And then right. he would tell me, and I would sort of juggle around with those notes and make my own bass lines up to his tunes, the sort of cl- classical Brazilian sounding things. And we played at a venue called The Roxy, which was at the Five Ways in, the, uh, in Paddington. Right. And uh, they were the very first kids when I was 17. Mm. And then I formed my own band when I was 18. Yeah, right. Form my own band, yeah. So I'd started writing some tunes and um, so I thought, oh, I thought that's what you did. Yeah. You, you write some tunes and you form a band and you go and get a gig. So that's... Right. And I know Tony Buck was the first... You know Tony Buck? Yeah. He's a drummer for a band called The Necks. Right. It's a well-known Australian kind of music. It's not really jazz, it's sort of a music, but they're very successful. Mm. Um, and he was, he was the drummer, so... I started off with a really good drummer. He was sixteen, and he turned up with a Billy Cobham double bass drum kit and everything. So he was the drummer in my first band. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: were you gigging with the, with your band? Not much. Not much. Though. But we rehearsed.
1: We rehearsed yeah, yeah. a real lot. You know, we were playing. We had. Right. We had a, he, Tony's father um, worked in the office block in town with a free basement. Big. I guess it was like a car park, but wasn't used. So we um, we had this we had our stuff permanently set up there. Oh, we go in there almost every night and just play, you know. And, and actually, it was in the in the basement, right next door to the basement. Oh right. Yeah, it was great. Rebe place. So yep. we, we would go and practice there, and then go into the basement and you know absorb that music that was going on. Right. And, and what sort of bands were coming through the basement at that stage? Well, Crossfire was yeah right. was there, it was, and Galap was Duck, I suppose. Um, yeah. Well, those kind of bands, Rena Gael, would have was, would have been there, mm. um, and then they had, a, yeah, then they had a lot of visiting, visiting acts too, visiting bands from from uh, mostly America, I suppose, and Europe and England. Mm. Yeah, it's good, good, good time. How yeah. did you start getting into the
0: uh, the gigging bands, the commercial type bands? Not, I'm uh, not. When I mean commercial, I don't mean, like, pop. Mm. But just because we were talking before about Mm. um, that sort of heyday. Yeah. How did you sort of get yourself into the scene where you were sort of playing in in bands that were playing often, as well as Um, still having your your band?
1: Yeah, right. Uh, Well, a guitar player, uh, a couple of the people I used to work with, like... uh, guitar player Guy Leclerc um he was later in the Eurogliders and Ian Moss's guitar he was Ian Moss's rhythm guitarist and played some jazz and things he's a friend and he had a band so I was in his band and uh he got a gig on a ship so went on a ship and then it was a fairly short stint like a couple of months maybe and um and then the Horn player, the original horn player from Crossfire was Don Reed. He went on for one cruise, I think, just to play with us. Mm. And he really liked my playing and so he recommended me for then this other singer's band, a woman called Wendy Gross, and in her band was Jim Kelly on guitar, you know, from Crossfire and um, uh, Dave Fennell, the piano player, and um, John Proud, the original Crossfire drummer, was in it. So I got to play with these guys from Crossfire. I was like 20. And um, the, drum, the piano player I mentioned in that day, Fennell, did a lot of writing for jingles and things. So he started booking me for some sessions. Mm. And then from, through that, I got the saxophone player, Ken James, saw me and I joined his quintet, played a lot. Um, in King's Cross, we had a regular gig at a place called the Paradise. Actually, man, we had a regular we had a regular gig at the Paradise on Fridays, a regular gig at a place called Red Neds in Chatswood on Thursdays, a place called Blades in Manly on Sundays. And and then I was in Errol Buttle's a regular band at the Sue Plus on Saturdays. So I was twenty one at that time. Right. So it was like it was an amazing Yeah yeah. And all these fellows were um, 15, 20 years older than I than I. Wow, what an So it's just fantastic. Like, yeah. We learned so much and, you know, that stuff, That there's no substitution for that, you know. Yeah, that's it. So it was a really good, incredible learning curve that, that few, that I've never, my playing has never changed and grown that much as it did in those few years, you know. Right. It's it's sort of incremental, you know. Now, you know, every right. five years, maybe now I notice maybe there's a glimmer of a change. Right, but, but it was just rocketing back then. Right.
0: Yeah. In in what kind of way?
1: Just sort of maturity, like maturing and um, knowing when to. Well, it took a bit longer than that to know when to shut up. Because <laughs> uh, I
0: think your style of playing is not yeah, meant to be
1: shut up. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's it. It, it served me well and served me not, you know, I, that's a double-edged sword, that thing. Okay. And I accept that, you know.
0: So did, in saying that, did you get onto gigs where um, you didn't stay on those gigs because they thought that you were overplaying? Did um, you have no, those situations? No, no,
1: just, yeah, they some, you? no. Some, thought, you know, they were kind, you know. they just sort of said, hey, Steve, man, you know, you're sounding good but you play too much there, you know, like <laughs> just shut up a bit. Or um, how about, you know... How about like the first three choruses? You just play like half as much, and then <laughs> <laughs> and then put on the heat a little bit, you know. Yeah. So they were mostly kind and they understood I was a twenty-year-old, but I suppose they saw, you know, that I had some ability and stuff, and and yeah. they were kind, you know. The same way I am, if I hire a young dude now, you know, mm. if I get if I hire a, if I get a young drummer now. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, that's, that's happened quite a lot in the last 40 years where I've got a musician that's substantially younger than me and I can almost tell they're going, I'm doing Steve's gig, it's a fusion gig, I can play everything I've ever wanted to play on every other gig, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. And in a way they sort of can, but it's like, well, hang on, man, just, you know, you'll, it. you'll get plenty of space, so you'll get plenty of room to play on my gig, but just let's just sit back on it for a bit, let's just simmer and not, just not burn all the time. You know? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, so that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, now, during this time, your own band is still yep. cooking away? Yeah. When did you start recording with your,
1: um, with your own band? Well, I did a couple of demos, but the first album I did under my own name was 1986. So I was 25. Okay. And I had a bunch of tunes and I had a band that had been going for a while. And it was a cool band. It was a good band. It was Andy Gander on drums, mm-hmm. and Carl Orr on guitar. It was Craig Walters on saxophone, Kevin Hunt on keyboards, and and myself. And uh, we went in and yeah, made a made an LP. <laughs> right. Yeah. Self funded. Yeah. Yep. Did it for did the whole lot for uh, about four grand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of money I mean, back then, though. Eh? It wasn't quite a lot of money, but was yes. what I figured, you know, like, it was just something I'd wanted. Again, it was coming back to that almost not, like naivety where mm. I always thought that's what you do. You you learn an instrument, you write stuff, you form a band, you record music, you put it into the world to see what may or may not happen. And what happened? Or well, what, I, was, I pressed the, I pressed happened? a 1,000 LPs and sold them. Yeah, right. And that was good. That was cool. You know, I was happy with that.
0: Um, what about playing and touring off the back of that? Was there a scene, no, scene I, for you? No,
1: I didn't even try. I, okay. I, I didn't have the... I didn't have the kind of... Uh, I didn't have the business chops. Or, or the right. sort of... I suppose I would have liked... I would, definitely would have liked to, but I still didn't have the, you know, the chops to sort of business-wise to sort of beyond getting on the phone to local gigs, really, and getting them. Then a few years later, I did. A few years later, I, I did, you know, other albums and was getting other help and had record labels and and that kind of thing, you know. Um, now,
0: you got to play with uh, Billy Cobham. Yeah. Right, so how did that come about?
1: That came about, um, well, Carl Orr rang me to do it. I'm not sure how it came about on his play. Um, What year was this? 1990. 1990, okay. Yeah. And he just rang me up one day and said, hey, man, do you want (laughs) to do do some gigs with Billy Cobham? (laughs) I said, what? And he said, yeah, Billy's coming out here in April. Um, And we got the gig. I was like, man, great, fantastic. So... That was that was it. Billy came and sure enough we, we rehearsed and did the gigs. Right. It was amazing. What's he like as a person? He was he's, he's a nice man, he's sort of Yeah, he was nice. He was he was cool. He was great. Yeah. Not a not incredibly talkative or anything, you know. Right. And he let you just he let you interpret the music, you know. Like, I, I knew the music pretty well because a lot of the stuff we were playing was from the back Spectrum album, his, no, which right. is such a classic. Yeah. So I played, I'd sort of played some of those tunes myself before, and, and was familiar with the ones that I hadn't played. And um, yeah, but he was great. He was fantastic. It was just really like playing with any good drummer. Man, it's always right. just a pleasure. Right. It's it's easy playing with good drummers. I know, yeah. I think. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm
0: going to ask you about drummers. I just, I tell you my Billy Cobham story. No. How I met him. Um, it was 1995. Yeah. And it was um, was Sydney Festival. Yeah. And Billy came out to Sydney to do a gig at the basement. And yeah. I'd only been in Australia for a month. And, and my mate says, oh, Billy Cobham's playing down the basement, you know. I oh, can, if we go down and we we hang by the steps, we'll be able to get in. So um, we went and sat, on, you know, on the, on the, on the side. Yeah, I do, those so steps to go down, goes yeah. down yeah. yeah. So we sat on the steps and we waited there and waited. Anyway, this black van pulls up and the doors open and this little bit of an entourage walks out and Billy walks out, he's got a towel, glasses. And um, as he's walking down the stairs, my mate says oh hey man can we come and watch your show and he goes have you paid right and we went nah and he just went (laughs) just laughed at us and walked (laughs) it, shut the doors and that was it so (laughs) we didn't even stick around we were so (coughs) embarrassed you know so yeah so anyway, fair call though you know yeah i think he'd pretty much sold that sold that basement out that day you know so yeah Mm. yeah yeah um what do you look for in a drummer
1: What's some, um, uh, what are the qualities? What don't okay. you like? What do you like? I don't, I'm not, I don't have a fixed idea about it.
0: Okay.
1: And I'm not, I'm not crazy about, you know, when somebody, you know, sometimes you get somebody who kind of goes, that seems to have a fixed idea about what a fusion style is, let's say. Yep. I don't really like that so much. I, I don't like it so much when, you, when I can hear somebody's going, this is my fusion style. This is my disco, j- this, this is my jazz style. I, I don't like that so much you know, when I can hear, oh, it's fusion lick number 14, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that so much. It doesn't, that, that often sort of makes me makes you not, feel fe- not feel the best. A little bit generic. Yeah, I kind of like it when somebody's just got their bag of weird shit that they've put together that sort of sounds cool. And it, and that by definition is fusion anyway because they've just grabbed a bit from here and a bit yeah. from here and a, yeah. and that sort of I often like drummers that sound a bit like that. Right. Um, but other than that, I, I don't have. A, I just wanted to. I just like, like it to feel good with what I what I do and and and, I, and obviously I want it to feel vice versa for them. Um, so that yeah, that can and that can be a weird one, you know. Like it, it doesn't even mean that. Obviously, that I mean, they might even be a, a, fa- a fantastic drummer, mm. but it just doesn't, for whatever reason, sit with what I do. Mm. Um, but they might sound great with somebody else, you know. Like, and you can see that in real high level players too. Like, there's a reason why there's a reason why there are no records with Jaco Pastorius and Vinny Collier. To, yeah, right. You know? Yeah. There's a reason why that... And yet there's these fast, light drummers, uh, like like the way Erskine often plays, sort of fast and light, or Alex Acuna, that fitted so beautifully with what Jaco did. Right. And then there's other bass players that sound so incredible with, with what Vinnie does. Yeah, that's right. You know, that sort of thing. So it's just sort of that thing of finding, you know, drummers that sort of just feel good to me. Mm. But having said that, you know, I've played with so many amazing drummers Mm. that they're probably just so damn good that they can make me sound good, you know. Yeah, right. They just, and because because a lot of the guys that I've played with, like Andrew Gander and David Jones and Virgil and Gordon and I know shitloads of bass players that say exactly, oh, man, he makes me feel, play so good. Yep. But they, those bass players don't play the same way I play, so mm. that says a lot about those, how great those drummers are, actually. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you had the... was Jack Jones,
0: yourself and Virgil yeah. in a trio. So how did that come about?
1: That was through a bass, I think, or, or a drum and bass sort of uh, equipment company... Oh, right. okay. Bizo thing, I think, yeah. from Melbourne, where whoever was doing Virgil's drums at the time... I, I had a thing at the time with um, Trace Elliott bass amps, yep. and Virgil—I I don't know who his drum company was—but and they sort of suggested this would be a good sort of Sydney-Melbourne yeah, thing. Cool. Yeah. So we put a trio together, and then it was good. And so we did it—we did it a few more times too. And I would fly down there and do some shows and play. We play some originals of mine, some of originals yep. of Virgil's, and then a few sort of. Uh, you know, John Schofield tunes or something as well. Right. It was good. It was great fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and you you played with
1: David. I played with David a real lot. Yep. Yeah, for about a decade. Yeah, right. Um, And toured with him a lot. Like, uh, I think firstly with, there's a guitar player called Guy Strauss, or Straitsulo as he was known then, and we did did a couple of albums with Guy and toured Indonesia and Australia a lot. And then I had a band called Pladium. You know John Foreman, the yeah. piano player? Yeah, was with him. Like, he was like 20. Must have been very young. Yeah, he was like yeah. 20. Yeah. And, um, and the guitar player Guy Leclerc and David and I, and we did a, an album with that band called Pladium. And, uh, and then I formed a band called Tree, which went for six years with Kevin Hunt and David Jones. Right. And uh, both those guys had like a, an Econovan or a, yeah, a, uh, yeah, Connor Vance. So we were forever up and down from so between Brisbane and Melbourne in, in the in one of those two guys' vans. Right. The, the whole trio just and we book we book a pretty solid string of gigs, you know, between um, Brisbane and Melbourne, and um, we were up and down pretty much constantly, you know. Mm. And we did that band did two albums as well. Mm. So a real lot of playing with David, and then. Uh, That was from, I formed that band I think in 94 Mm -hmm. and he, um, I think he moved back to Melbourne in about 99 and we kept it going for a little while after he moved back to Melbourne but we kind of tailed off a bit after that. Mm. So it was a good, but it was a real good run Mm. with David. I loved playing with David a lot, yeah. Yeah, he's a special player, eh? Yeah, man, really original, Mm. just like what we were talking about before, like there's a guy that's just... Grab things from all over the place it just sounds like david yeah and it's so beautiful to play with yeah and, and yeah andy gander's probably the drummer that i've done the most gigs with right so i've done gigs with him going back from 83 right up to two years ago right it's like literally probably probably more than a thousand gigs right. and he's on like five of my albums Yep. so he's the guy that i'm Probably grown up playing with the most, you know, from the age of 23 right up to sort of mid 50s. Right. So, yeah, he's the guy that I'm sort of probably closest to in a way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, David's magic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Cordy talks a lot about. Oh, yeah, well, he was a
1: big mentor for David, yeah. Yeah,
0: Oh, yeah, totally. And
1: for Gordon, I mean.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, Cordy was saying, you know, the stuff, like you hit the stuff you kind of hearing now from some people, you know, different types of playing with, you know, different things on drums and using different sticks and stuff like yeah. that, it, it's kind of, like, it's kind of coming to the forefront now, but David was doing that stuff way
1: back. Yeah, 30 years ago, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that was fascinating. That's right. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, yeah that's right. Yeah. Thongs on <laughs> sticks and yeah, dish it. mops and yeah, all yeah. sorts of stuff, yeah. yeah. ping pong balls. Yep, on sort of on the um, skewers. Skewers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredible.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, you're original, dude.
0: Yeah. All right, so that must have been around that sort of heyday period in the nineties. Yeah. Um, how many gigs were you playing a week? Do you reckon?
1: Uh, I reckon um, I reckon uh, three, four. I mean, these were, and, and these are all gigs that, you know, music that I was sort of heavily involved with, you know. Right. Mostly writing for. Yep. Um, yeah, I'd say about four, four a week. Right. Yeah. I had a real lot of the Harbourside Brunswick. I was in Carl Law's band there and uh, my own band there. Dale Barlow's band. Was that with Gordy? It wasn't Yeah, Gordon would have done it sometimes. Yep. Um... Dale used to use a lot of different people, you know. So I did it sometimes. Adam Armstrong played bass in it sometimes. Steve McKenna I played with sometimes. Sometimes with Gordon, mm. Steve McKenna's band. That was a good. Steve, I don't know if you know Steve McKenna, but I great guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Mm. passed away a couple of years ago. Right, but uh, he was a great player. Mm. Um, no, it was just a great period. Jackie Uzarski had his regular band down there on the Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. It was a good scene. Mm-hmm. And then I had a regular gig at a place called the Strawberry Hills Hotel, Surrey Hills. I got a regular Thursday night there, which I had for ages. And uh, that went, yeah, that went for, for ages. That was just playing my stuff. And um, and I was also in a saxophone player called Mark Simmons, It's a bit of an, a a legendary Australian sort of jazz dude. Mm. I was in his band playing a sort of more jazz end of the thing, not so much electric end of the thing. So I was playing more the jazz end of it. And in a way my focus shifted a little bit. Um, I mean it's a little bit, a a bit overly simplified maybe, but a lot of what I started to get into, the way I started to think about playing was a little bit more Jazz rock rather than rock jazz, if you get what I mean, you know. Sort of thinking about that improvisational end of it a lot more. And in a way I still kind of lean towards that end of it. Right. Sort of it's a bit more elastic, a bit more jazz oriented than... There's very, very little sort of West Coast fusion vibe in what I do. There's probably none of that actually.
0: Right. Yeah. What about fretless? you played fretless. Yeah, I did. I played right. fretless really
1: early. I played one for like four or five years. Yeah, right. And then what, you know so, solely fretless. Yeah, only fretless. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then uh, and then I was kind of. I mean, I copped a lot from Jacko, you know, mm. and um, and then I thought, oh man, you know, I, I want to get away from some of this, mm. you know, because it was because I was pretty good at mimicking it, you know. Mm. Um, also, I kind of actually realised that the area of the what he was in, was doing because a lot of you know there's a lot of areas to Jaco, you know and a lot of what i was interested in what he was doing was actually the more like a woody kind of sound and the clarity of the lines it was i wasn't so much into the whole the whole sort of a remark you made sliding around Element of it actually—that gotcha. wasn't the, yeah. the prime thing about him for me. It was more just the, the clarity lines. and the percussion and the notes and the quality of the yeah. the lines. You know, the stuff he came up with. Mm. So, and then I fi- and then I found that I could do that on a fretted bass anyway. I can kind of make a fretted bass sort of sound fretless. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So and that's by playing your
0: hand right back towards the yeah.
1: It is. It yeah. is. And left hand technique. Just yeah. Right. Having having your left hand sort of tucked in right just right at the back of the fret, you know.
0: Yeah,
1: right. Um, and actually, even now to this day, people at uh, gigs come up and say, oh, man, that, have you got fret markers? They think that, they think that this, this is... It's fretless. It's fret, yeah, <laughs> I've got, that I've got the markers in there, you know. Yeah. It's fret markers. Yeah. They think it's fretless, but, yeah, it's, it's not. Yeah. And it's great, which, which is great, because you don't you know, end up with a an yeah. intonation problem, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so... So, yeah, I did, but I did play it for, um, like yeah, five years, I think. Yeah, right. From the age of sort of 19 through to 23, 24 something. Mm.
0: Yeah. Mm. You've played a bit abroad. Yeah, um, I have. Uh, I know you've played Asia. A lot. India and stuff like that. A real that. lot in Asia, yeah. Did you ever get back across to Europe or get into the States or...?
1: I went, well, I was in the States. I, I was in and out of the States a lot in the early 90s again. I was sort of just right. in and out a real lot and meeting people and... I, and doing some gigs, you know, with some people over there and... Were um, trying to get into the session scene there? Were you playing I wasn't trying there? to get into the session scene. I yep. was just sort of trying to get to meet some of the people and play with some of the people in my record collection, really. Right. And I did. So I, East
0: Coast or West
1: Coast? I was going to the West Coast. Right. Um, because I think at the time, at that time, it was still a bit more delineated, like the electric stuff was sort of West Coast and the acoustic jazz thing, bebop, I guess, stuff coming out of post-bebop was New York. It's, gotcha. I think it's all a little bit more integrated now, but yeah. at, at that time it just seemed like, you know, if you wanted to play the electric stuff, the, East, the West Coast was where where it was. And the guys I was sort of interested in, like Chick Corea and mm-hmm. Joe Zawinall and Wayne Shorter and Alan Holdsworth and Scott Henderson mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. those kind of people, they, they were all in on the west coast so um so that's where i kind of focused a little bit mm. did, um, have you ever
0: played did you ever play um upright bass
1: no nah. <coughs> i know nah. always been electric yeah Not i sure. had a shot at it like well i, I had a friend leave me one a, f- a friend uh, a bass player friend who did a tour he was went on tour playing his electric, and he left his acoustic bass with me for like four months while he was away on his tour, just to look after it really, right? And and sort of check it out if I wanted to while he was away, and uh, which I did. And uh, I just quickly realised it was a completely different beast. Yeah. And I, I know. And even there, though there are those people like I know, like John Patitucci who can be amazing on both. I just knew pretty quickly that. I just felt like if I was going to be on this, I'd be robbing time from the electric and okay. vice versa. So I pretty quickly made the decision I'm, I'm just going to... You know, I'd end up, I think, sounding half-assed on both, you know. Right. And I would rather. that. Plus, I love the electric bass. So yeah, I, yeah. So Speaking of Pettitucci... Mm.
0: I'll try that again. Speaking of Pettitucci... Mm. Um, and you also mentioned Chick before. You played with Chick Yeah. You? Yeah, right. I did, yeah. Right. Now, what... Around what time... What's that was, first was that? time
1: was, uh, 89. Yep. And then, uh, again in 90, late 90. Mm. Yeah, which was an amazing experience, you know? Like, mm. Um, yeah, I'd been writing to him since I was, like, 17. Yeah, right. I wrote to all those guys. That's cool. Because at that time, you could, on the, you know, on, remember, on the LP covers... A lot of them had places where you could sort of write send to them. Send fan letters and stuff. Yeah. 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 And so I used to write to all of them. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know why, really. I don't know what I was expecting. But um, he was one of the ones that wrote back. Some of them would write back, like, just uh, like send, like, a glossy photo of themselves signed or something, <laughs> you know? Like Stanley Clark did that? Yeah. He's like, Stanley. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> But you know, he wrote back and it was sort of an encouraging letter, you know, like I sent him a cassette, you know, and it was sort of an encouraging letter and stuff. And then i send more, you know, and he encouraged me to send other stuff, you know, and, which I did. And then um, i sort of... So I established this sort of uh, male, you know, relationship by mail. And um, then I was... Then I went to... Uh, I did an album called Home Base in uh, 1988 and it was really well recorded, um, did it at 3.01 and... Right, um, your, your album? Yeah, it was yep. my album yep. called Home yep. Base, yep. Home yeah, base, yep. and it and, um, was, was beautifully recorded and had Andy on drums and Dale Barlow and I wrote these nice sort of very concise tunes and actually thinking back on it, quite a few of them were quite Chick career sort of oriented, you know. Um, and I went. then I went to LA and I met his manager and then Chick invited me to do this one gig um, which I did and then uh, he invited me to do like three or four others and um, the, the electric band was already happening at this time so these were gigs um, these were gigs that were while the electric band wasn't Playing, they were just it was just billed as ch- Chick Corea and Friends, and it had Tommy Breckline on drums. Do You know, yeah, Tom yeah. Breckline. Yeah, yeah, he was the drummer. I've got I've got um, recordings of those gigs actually. Oh, wicked. yeah, Desk tapes. You know that were on cassette that I've got transferred onto the
0: Great.
1: onto the um, CD. And uh, yeah, Tom Breckline was on drums, and Mark Isham was played electric trumpet. It was fantastic, man. And he invited me to contribute a tune to the. To the tour, you know, to the oh, yeah. trip. And, and then, um, so it's just a little circuit, just a, a handful of gigs. And then we did the, exactly the same circuit the following year, exactly a year later. So. This is flying in and out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I was in and out quite a lot. Right. And I did gigs with Maxine Nightingale at that time. Remember she had a, She had a famous song called, I think it was, I Never Can Say Goodbye. Was that her? Oh, yeah. yep. Um and Gail Moran, did some gigs with Gail Moran. She's Chick's wife. She was also in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Did some gigs with her. And some other, you know, so I got to do a few things, you know. Mm. Um, but at the time, I I had, I had one young kid already. Okay. Um, I had a four-year-old already by that time. And then uh, was expecting another kid and the wife I was with at the time, we were kind of talking about maybe relocating to Los Angeles and I just started thinking, man, like, I don't think I want to live in this place, you know. Mm. It just was so far removed from where I grew up Mm. and it's so far removed from, you know, that whole thing of sort of, oh, hi, so your name's Steve Uh, and you play bass and you have a... I have a nephew called Nathan who plays best. You guys should really hook up. And it's kind of, that way of talking and being is just <laughs> so far from my psyche, you know? Right. And I just thought, man, I can't, I can't pretend that I want to be here, you know, as much as I kind of want to be around some of these people. Yeah. And I just made the decision that, um, I wanted to live here. I knew I didn't want to live in England. Mm. I didn't, and I didn't want to live... And it wasn't worth sort of going to live in Kentucky or something. Right. If I was going to be in America, it would have... Been LA or... Nothing. Been LA, really, yeah. at the time. Yeah. And I just made the decision, I don't... I want to be here. I like, I like living in Australia. Mm. And that if anything, you know, is going to happen outside of these shores with my so-called career, it's going to happen, it's going to happen from here. And if it doesn't, fuck it. Mm. I mean, I'm still getting to play with... Andrew Gander and David Jones and James Muller and yeah. Anyway, I mean, yeah. It doesn't, you know. I'm happy <laughs> play. Yeah. I'm completely happy playing with those people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. So, I get to do what I I get to re- write my music, record my music, go and play with my band, and do my shit anyway. Yeah. I don't need to be in Los Angeles really to do that. Yep. And, a, and a, quality, a, a certain quality of life is, is really important to... I think it's important to everyone. I, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but it's really important to me and how yeah. I feel about my life and my music. And it, yeah, I was going to say, sort of yeah. stunt the creativity of it, you know? Yeah. yeah, And the social veneer the social yeah. veneer in, in Los Angeles is really thick, you know? Yeah, right. It's really thick. Right. And I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. Mm. So, and I'm not good at pretending. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that, I'm just not good at it. That's a good thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, all right, so once you made that decision that I oh, don't want to live here anymore, when you
1: left, did you ever go back?
0: To well, LA. Yeah, or was that it?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I can't. No, I probably didn't actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I did. Yep. No. Mm. But I did go, I went to Europe, I went and lived in Spain for a year. Right. Which was a different trip again. What did you that away? was a bit later, you know, that was sort of... That was in 2004. Right. Well... And I suppose there's a bunch of stuff that happened before 2004, but... Because I'm not really a holiday person, I don't really do holidays. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was fairly new, in a newish relationship with my wife now. Mm-hmm. we've We've been together for 17 years now. But, um she had a thing that was based out of uh malaga university in spain and which was going to take a year and i thought well why don't i take a year out and just Mm. go and hang with her and and just have a change of scenery because i I hadn't done it for so long Mm. and um and i love flamenco music and i've been involved with bands that are i don't claim to be a well-studied flamenco musician again it's just stuff that i've Gotcha. Grabbed from Paco de Lucía and Chikorita, and mm. you know I've got a, a little bit of a feeling yeah. for that music. So I thought that would be interesting. Go and live in Andalusia for a year and um, just get, absorb a bit of that. Vibe, get your you know. ass kicked, yeah, yeah, the pros. yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and just experience something different for for a year. So that that was kind of nice, just being being in Europe. And I've got the English passport, of course, so I mm. I could do that. You know, I could live live there and hang there and. Yeah. Didn't need any visas or anything like that. That's cool. Yeah. And as it happened at the time, I kind of, um, I could afford it because I'd just got this really great thing from the Australia Council called a, uh, an artist fellowship, which was 80 grand. Fuck. Yeah. It was, which they grant to people that have done, you know, that have done a lot and under their own steam. And, uh... And are likely to do more. And I noticed, I've noticed actually, that they nearly always gave it to people in their sort of early forties, which I was at the time, because I, fi- I guess they figure he's got twenty years of shit behind him and he's probably got another twenty years in front of him, you know. Right. T- so I, I, I know about ten guys that have been awarded that, and they were all they were all between forty and forty-five. So, um, so I got that, and right. and just as as it happened, they awarded me that just at the time when I was, so I could actually afford to just go and live somewhere for a year. Right. And I wrote, I went and wrote a whole load of music and, mm. you know, I didn't waste the time at all. I, I just wrote a whole load of music. I came back and did an album, you mm. know, of music that I'd written while I was there and mm. and all that. But that was, that was really nice, just taking a bit of time out. So that, um, that Grant. Yeah.
0: Was there any... Obligation, uh, it's not really
1: technically a grant, actually, Steve. It's just called uh, a fellowship, which okay. means there are not exact criteria that you have to fulfill. Like, usually, when I'm, you get a grant, I'm to ask. You say, you've say, got to so I'm going to spend $40 on this and $100 and on the studio. I want you to give me an album, and, yeah. Uh, so, nothing like yeah. that. It's but just yeah, like, you, you, thank you
0: for what you've done, and hopefully,
1: you can do some more. That's yeah, quality. a little bit more than that. It's, yep. it's, 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 here's an acknowledgement for what you've done, and also, but you, you sort of outlay some plans. So you say, well, I'm going to do. I did an album of songs, for example. I used seven different singers on it, Mm. Um, and I wrote a load of songs with vocals, and Mm. it was nothing to do with sort of fusion and jazz and whatever. Right. And I did a a quartet record, which was open blowing sort of thing, and um, presented some other concerts with a larger group. And so I did. I did things. I did do things with it. And then there were things that. but you're also allowed to fail with this particular thing, you know, right. where well, you say, well, I tried that and that didn't really work. Did you have to show, it that, show that you were it? You, for- you, do, you, you, do you do submit a, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, at the end, I can't even think what the damn thing's like called. Like a review type, yeah, type at, thing. Yeah, yeah, at the very end of it. And, yep. you know, but it's, it's not sort of saying, well, this... You know, I spent. I bought this box of tea bags for that session. <laughs> you know? gotcha. It's not you not having to account for it. It's pretty. It's more open than that. Yeah. And you are sort of, and you're allowed to to fail on certain things. Well, I tried this and I, it didn't work, and I tried that, and here's the result. I'd send them some CDs and whatnot that I did do yeah. with the money, and um, and it's and also it's okay to use some of that money just to live. Yeah, because just to live for. Uh, Say three months if you wanted to write, say some big band charts or something. You know, you can use it for food. Right, it's perfectly okay within the within the uh, confine the the parameters of that um, that particular dosh. You know,
0: right. Do Mm. they still give those things now? Yeah, right. It's a hundred grand now. Oh right.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, it's still around. I think they. I think it's like. A couple of years ago, it's usually the one to a jazz sort of oriented person and one to a classical person, maybe. Right. I'm not 100% sure about that, but mm. I think that's. So they
0: stay away from the pop rock kind of thing.
1: Pro- yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe, maybe they don't. I don't. Maybe know. they think that's not art. Yeah, maybe they think that's possibly. not art. Yeah, quite, yeah. quite probably. Mm. And and maybe mistakenly or not, they think that there are other areas that are injecting money into that. Gotcha. But I, I don't know if they're because I'm not really involved in in the sort of pop commercial music scene. I don't know yeah, how. Yeah, right. I, I never have known how that functions. Right. No.
0: Just on that then, did you, was there ever a stage where you were playing in sort of pop rock cover bands? No, never. never. Never done it? No. Okay, cool, man. So you you've always stuck to your thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the early days, I mean, I didn't do that, but I did do other things like ships and um, right. theatre restaurants and backing acts, you know, backing cabaret acts and things like that. So right. I did, right. I did sort of gigs that weren't playing music that I didn't want to do. Okay. Yeah, but I did, but you know, and just sort of function. I did some, you know, some function things and things like that. Yeah, right. But yeah. I hated it, man. Like, yeah. I'd come home from those gigs, you know, and just. Um, And I'd end up just having to roll a huge joint <laughs> and just lie on my back on the middle of the lounge floor and go, what the hell? What did I do
0: What's before?
1: this about, you know, playing music that I don't like? I'm trying to get some of your soul back. Yeah, you or know, just playing music I don't really like to people who are not listening, wearing clothes I would never usually wear. Yep. And carrying my bass cabinet through the fifth store, the fifth <coughs> story of the Hilton. Yeah. You know, and all you know, mm. and so I. Well, actually, that was going to make. I was about twenty-five when I made that decision. I'm not going to do any of these gigs anymore. Mm. And if I need to supplement my income from playing music that I do want to like, that I that I do like, I'm going to do it through teaching.
0: Yeah.
1: Which I find really rewarding. You know, yeah. I love teaching, and I find it really. Really re- rewarding, you know. Mm. I see people leave the lesson, you know, with shining their eye and some enthusiasm, and uh, that's fantastic.
0: Um, what's been the biggest challenge being in Sydney? Um,
1: well, I suppose the I suppose the geographic isolation, that, which is just a bit probably about. I mean, that's not Sydney-specific, though, is it? Because you could probably say the same thing if you were in Perth. Hmm. Um, well, and lately, I mean, it's been... Although, I mean, I like to be optimistic and I like to think it's... I like to think there's an upswing a little bit lately that things are improving again a little bit of late. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the thing... the the thing that baffles me, I suppose, to nutshell it is I can't think of another city in the world, Stevie, that's got five fucking million people mm. with so little happening culturally. Yeah. Like five million people. Man, like, all well, those are the cities in Germany. You know, a lot of those cities in Germany have only got like three million. Yeah. And they've got twice the amount of...
0: Yeah, four. <laughs> Four or five festivals a month
1: yeah <laughs> you know? Four, yeah, um, yeah, exactly, and a lot of clubs yeah, and yeah, yeah. theater yeah. Um, ga- art galleries, um, cultural events for families, mm. all sorts of amazing yeah just life just art artistic life going yeah. on, yeah. that thing you know like and it's such a, a, a potentially an amazing place to have that happening. It's, you know the weather's really great for it yeah. it's it's a nice city physically it's it, it, I can't I don't know how it went so wrong mm. I don't I'm not a very politically uh, well I don't chase it I don't follow what's going on I'm not pati- particularly politically savvy but man I, I just can't understand how that, that is the case mm. you know because we know we have we know we have uh, artists to to make it fantastic mm. I, I don't know. Mm. That's that's what I find the, the is the hardest thing to cop with Sydney and understand about Sydney. Mm. Yeah.
0: How many how many of your regular gigs have been directly affected by the these lock the lockout laws and
1: stuff like that? Well, I think some of them. It's hard to it's hard to exactly predict, but mm. I think. There's that thing that that it's hard to predict because of things like, say, the lockout laws, say there's venues that maybe have music, say, five or six nights a week. On Fridays and Saturdays they'll have bands that are maybe catered more towards people that just want to go out and dance and have some fun. Yep. And so they would have maybe two bands on a Friday night and two bands on a Saturday night Mm. and the... um, the club would do really well. They'd have live music from, say, 9 o'clock to, say, or 8 o'clock, say, till 2. Mm. And the club does it makes a killing on those two nights. Yep. And so that allows them to then present music Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that's maybe, you know, a little bit more fringe. Yep. But the lockout laws then have affected their weekend, so they now only have the one band each on the Friday and Saturday night and they decide to cut back on their midweek stuff. Right. No, so, that, so it's really hard to tell because, because of that factors like that, you yeah. know. Because yes. they do, because a lot of these venue owners, they really, they do like to support artists. Yeah. They really do want to do that, but it's, many of them are kind of artists themselves. But they, but they also need to, you know, have a viable working business. So, yeah, of course. So they, they know the Friday and Saturday nights, are big bread and butter that enables us to not have to make so much money on Tuesday and Wednesday. Mm. So it's affected it in that way, mm. yeah. too, mm. so, which is hard to you know pinpoint, it's yeah, hard to pin yeah, yeah. it down, it's but it's awesome. definitely an
0: effect. It's a great answer. Never, mm. yeah, never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what specific area of bass playing mm. have, do you find the most challenging? Uh, and I don't mean, I don't mean gigs and stuff like that. This is a question directly taken from the. Mm. Bass players round table that we had yeah yeah, just um interested to get your take on it, you know, be it is it mm. groove soloing yeah what what do you find the the, the biggest challenge the reading the writing
1: uh, no, nah, it's not reading or writing mm. uh, or soloing mm-hmm. oh even you No, know, it's um Finding something that's interesting to me whilst whilst not tripping the song over at the same time or the tune over at the same time. Mm. It's an interesting one though because actually while I was reading, while I was listening to that, your bass player roundtable one, Mm. um, which was was interesting, Um, you know that thing, you know, where we say... And I've said it myself, and a lot of musicians say, you know, you serve the song, you serve the song. Mm. And there's sort of truth in that, but at the same time, there's a lot of ways to serve a song. Like Kate Bush's version of Rocket Man is really different than Elton's. You know, where if you go well, serve the song, you kind of it's, a lot of the time you kind of say serve the song. I say, like, well, hang on, what did D Murray play on Elton John's version of Rocket Man? Yeah, yeah right. But then you go, well, how about? Be do fucking Rocket Man like this, and you listen to Kate Bush's version of Rocket Man. It's amazing. Yeah, or S- Stevie Wonder's version of We Can Work It Out. You know, or whatever. Like, so whilst I agree with that thing of of uh, serving the song, I don't like to have a fixed idea of about what that is either. You know, I think there can be a lot of ways of mm. serving a song. So I think the idea is. The thing to answer your question via way of China is um, <laughs> <laughs> is um, to try to not get in the way of the song and try to sort of serve the song, but at the same time not be on my knees to what somebody else's idea of that is, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's, that's awesome,
1: answer. Um, do you
0: practice much?
1: Yeah, yep. I do. I practice, yeah. Or, yeah, I do. I practice a lot and play a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes that's more just playing, just playing, see what happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's uh, drilling specific exercises that I write out for myself. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. And does that come about by a need to drill that stuff based on how you've played a certain night? You driving home going, well, that didn't quite work. Yeah, a little bit of Tomorrow that. Tomorrow
1: I'm going to... Well, that, work, that, that one works both ways. Right. Because if I, if I think I played well, I'll come home and want to continue it. And if I think I sucked, oh. I'll come home and want to improve <laughs> it. <laughs> gotcha. So, <laughs> so I'll often come home and play after a gig either way. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's usually because I want to work on something different because I'll hear somebody, um, I'll hear what, say, Michael Brecker, the kinds of lines Michael Brecker plays right. or someone and think, well, I can't, I, I can't play those, mm. you know, and want to get close to... Because really, I stopped listening to, to bass players for that stuff years and years, a long time ago, you know? Yeah, yeah, And you listen to the amazing improvisers, like like Michael Brecker, or like, look, even right here, let's see that. This is one I... This is a Joe Zominal line, mm-hmm. and it's three bars. Right. From this tune called The Harvest. Yep. And it's just... I just heard it and thought, what the hell was that? So I wrote it out. Right. And then, as you can see, it's three bars, but it's three amazing bars right Uh, bars that a bass player would never play that right so I'll I'll do a lot of say something like that and um, and then sort of and then I play this upside down or in triplets or just ways to disguise my theft (laughs) (laughs) that's great and um, you know so yeah I just work I work on things like that Mm. whatever 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 Comes to mind at the time. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, your kids' musical. My, my, yeah, they're all kind of. They're all kind of. They've all got good rhythm, I noticed. They can dance. They've got. But the the youngest one's sort of leaning towards music. I think. Mm-hmm. I thought my oldest son was going to be a musician, but um, he ended up being an actor. Right, and uh, they're all creative, you know. Yeah, all creative, but mm. I, I don't know, it's hard to tell, mm. it's hard to tell, because my oldest son, who's now 27, he had sticks in his hand from the age of two through to five, constantly drumsticks, and he had all these, we used to use my house as a rehearsal place, so he got to see Gordon and David Jones and Andy all the time in his lounge room, yeah, well, and he would sit there, like, glued to them, yeah. trying to attack, and I thought, oh, this guy's going to be, I would have I bet my life on it, you know, but then when he, he was five, he announced that he wanted to be an actor. And, that's what he is. <laughs> right. So I, so I'm not going to, you know, I don't sort of, uh, I wouldn't bet on it anymore, having seen him. Mm. Mm. Are there
0: any Australian bass players mm. that inspire you?
1: Yeah, there are. Um, and I mean, when I was young, I used to go and see. Uh, well, by young, I mean like sixteen. I used to go out and see Jackie Azarski play. Mm-hmm. He had a sort of jazz rock band called Burramiata and I used to be inspired by seeing Jackie play. And then a little later I used to see Phil Scorgie play and um, he could do things that I couldn't do <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, probably no, no one else I knew here could do either, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of, in a way, Phil kind of made it made it real that again like a local dude could play strings of notes you know right and so put solos together and right. um have those kind of chops you another know? reason why you don't have to
0: be in la yeah. That kind of thing,
1: yeah yeah and then and then but i'd see other people around like victor rounds a little older than me maybe i don't know maybe five or six years older than me i could see him and there were certain things Victor would do. There was that period at the Paradise Jazz Cellar where I was working there, I was like 21 with Ken James's band, and Victor was working there with a band called Dumbala. And I used to see those guys play there, and you know, I used to really enjoy watching Victor and uh, what he was doing. And um, and then there were guys that are my age who write around exactly my vintage, like like, say, Mark Costa, who can do the. You know, he was doing the slapping thing so very well, mm. and um, and then more lately, I kind of, I suppose, as I've matured uh, as a human being, which is which is obviously a work in progress, <laughs> is, um, I, I sort of admire people more and more. You know, I think t- if I'm perfectly honest about it, for quite a quite a long period, maybe twenty years. Up until I was probably forty, there was an element of uh, competitiveness. Mm. You know, the other bass players were basically the enemy. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> you know. Yep. Well, that's like there's a little bit of that as maybe even coming from sport thing, mm. that swimming thing. Like you win, you you you're trying to win. You know.
0: Gotcha.
1: And and I, that is that was in my psyche. Mm. You know, but now I, I can I can, I really love hearing. ...different bass players and hear what they do and yeah, hear great. how they work. and yeah. Like I saw Adam Ventura... Actually, we did, we did a gig with Adam Ventura. James Ryan, the saxophone player, put yeah. a gig together a year or so ago... ...and he, he got two drummers. And um, who's the... Who's the, um, who's the married guy? Buddy. Yeah. Yep. Buddy and Gordon. Yep. And me and Adam Ventura right and saxophone right so two bass two drums it was so much fun you know and just hearing how adam you know approached it and um had a different slant than myself and gordon and buddy had yeah but complimentary and everyone listening it was really a beautiful thing you know so I'd, alex stewartson plays really beautiful bass right and, um oh, big, did
0: you, you played for dig did you
1: yeah, but just depth. I yeah, de- did a, de- yeah I did a depth for for him when he yeah. when he right. couldn't do it. Right. Which was a which was a different gig. Yeah. Mm. I, I was never in the band. Right. But um, but I probably did about ten gigs with him all up.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. But yeah. um, yeah, I, I can find something that I like in a lot of people's playing more, more and more. You know, mm. and even things from even not things in Sydney, but just things on recordings. You know that I maybe I might have heard and gone, oh yeah, you know, it's all right. And now that i will hear and think, wow, you know, it's... actually mentioning D. Murray before with Elton John, mm. you know, mm. just what he what he does on um, on Rocket Man.
0: Mm.
1: It's really beautiful. You yeah, like
0: a listen to Nigel Olsen play drums yeah. all
1: day. Yeah, just, yeah. just the inventiveness uh, of yeah. of those people. Yeah. And so yeah, I do I do think of it differently as as much as I've come through all that whole thing of um, virtuosic sort of mm-hmm. uh, you know electric jazz and all that stuff mm. i i I can think you know anything if it's played well and just sort of interesting and, and with a sort of some imagination mm. that thing you know
0: yeah
1: and that's that thing, I suppose too, when you're talking about what to what to play you know like how to it's that thing of just trying to find something that's interesting um, but serves the song but but you're not just going ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. but where well, you could do that and it would, would work but sort of trying to find something that's still going to have the same propulsion as that but isn't that, you know? Right. some something, something a little bit different, something a little bit that gives it a signature or a little bit of difference, you know? Yeah. that thing. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think finally, what what motivates you? Um, fear of death.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't know. I think, like, I, I don't, I'm not a person that probably needs much motiva- motivation other than just being, sitting next to the bass guitar, you know? That's cool, man. If I'm sitting next to the thing, it's tempting me to, you know, to pick it
0: up. The drawers there. Yeah. yeah
1: but great. I have to say, you know, like, Becoming a, a father again, like the second, the, four, the third, and fourth time, you know, when I yep. was 50 and 55, I became a dad again. And so I got these two young boys, you know, and it's important for me to be an example to them of doing the thing that you love and, and working hard at what it is you do and all that stuff. Because it would be pretty easy at 59 now, you know, to sit around yeah. <laughs> and not do much. Yeah. If, but because they're around, you know, that, that sort of... Maybe it sounds like a cliche answer in a way, like, because of my kids, <laughs> you know, I'm no, doing no, it for no. them. Yeah, but you some,
0: pe- some people don't give yeah. a do shit about
1: the kids. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's, partly, it's partly... As I say, I, I, I'm a person that would probably be motivated in this area regardless of what was happening. But, you know, being an example to my boys is... I know that that's important. Yep. No. Because mm. I can't preach that. If I'm not practicing it. I understand. Yeah. 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 Any new music coming up? I want to do another... I've got a ton of music. I've got a ton of new music written. Yeah. But it's a matter of... uh, But I want to do it a little bit differently next time. I don't want to just go in for three days and bang it out, you know. Right. I I want to maybe try something with a couple of little loop things in there and try things with uh, a basic trio and then add some different people on different tracks and... And also, because I've done a lot of albums, yep. it's. I'm thinking maybe I'd do one next year when I'm 60 and that might be a good time. Mm. It's got to somehow, I can't, although it's hard to put into words, it's got to somehow mean a little bit more at this time in my life than just banging out another 10 tunes or 8 tunes, you know? Because I could do that, because I've, I've got like 400 tunes, man. Like, <laughs> I've, I've got endless music. Yeah. But it's somehow got to feel like something else other than just... Here's another 10 of my tunes, here's another 10 of my tunes, here's yeah, another, you right. know. It's got to feel like it's integrated with life somehow. That's cool, man. A bit more for the next one, somehow. Yeah, at 60, that's how it feels, yeah. Awesome, looking forward to that, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Steve Hunter, thanks so much for, for um, sitting with me today and having me in your studio and thanks for talking having about me. your stuff, man, yeah. it's, uh, it's an honour to meet you and and hang out and um
1: yeah cheers stevie no, cool, man. really enjoyed it man it's good, good fun Steve. thanks brother pleasure